Pete Buttigieg talks abortion with a seven-year-old. Actress Jamila Jamil says there is no democracy without abortion. So suck on that. And then fatherly, that leftist dad publication, interviews a family who killed their unborn child for having Down syndrome, but not before naming that child and then naming their next child in honor of him. We will examine the shamelessness of abortion ideology, its intellectual suicide, and what it means for us. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. Hey, Merry Christmas. I hope you have wonderful holy days and celebration of Christ this Christmas. Hey, if you like this show and you want to help promote it, you want to help share it with others, would you just give us a five-star rating? It helps actually way more than you know. So scroll down if you're on iTunes podcast, give us a five-star review, give us a rating, let us know what you think, and then have a friend review it as well and send it to a friend to check out as well. So Merry Christmas. I want to encourage you this most pro-life of all holidays. The Christmas holiday is the most pro-life holiday, isn't it? Because it's literally the celebration of an unborn child. It's the celebration of the God fetus, the God embryo, the God baby who took on humanity as fully God and fully man as an unborn baby residing in a womb that he had once created. That is the awe-inspiring, radical nature of the incarnation. So don't let those leftists take Christmas from you. And if they say happy holidays, you tell them you're right. It is very holy days as we celebrate the holy God who forever made the womb sacred by residing in a womb that he had created as himself an intrinsically valuable human being, the most pro-life message you could get. So With that in mind, let's read A Christmas Eve Reflection by Father Frank Pavone, probably one of the most popular Catholic pro-life leaders in the country of Priests for Life. And this was a Christmas Eve reflection he wrote several years ago. I want to read it for us, and I want to center our hearts and our affections correctly as you listen to this episode days before Christmas. He says, most people believe in God, but all too many are afraid to approach him. They are convinced he exists, but are not convinced that he is on their side. Questions like, what does God expect of me? Or how does he want me to worship him? Remain unsolved mysteries. Moreover, the thought of approaching an unseen, almighty being who fills the universe in all its parts is both puzzling and scary. Christmas is meant to change all that. Christmas is God in human language, God revealing himself by becoming one of us so that he can tell us plainly who he is. Some are afraid to approach an almighty spirit, but who is afraid to approach a little baby? God becomes a little baby tonight to call us all to come near to him. God comes at Christmas to reveal that he is indeed on our side, that he conquers our enemies, and that He, what he expects of us is to follow the teachings of that child who grew up to proclaim the gospel. We live in strange times because even though God made himself a little baby, some are even afraid of that. Abortion is the primordial evil of our day for many reasons. One reason is that it rejects even the child. The chosen way God invites his people to draw near to him. The birth of every child reflects the joy of the birth of Christ and the meaning of Christmas. So let this new year bring the world closer to reverence for every birth, every child, every life. That's what Father Frank Pavone had to say about Christmas. And isn't that right? 
How dare we intrude in the sanctity of the womb, forever made sacred by the creator of every womb who stepped down into human history to reside in the womb of Mary. What he declares sacred is sacred. And when scripture says we're created in his image, then life itself is sacred. This Christmas season is the celebration of life, of a unborn baby who forever changed human history and who was born and conceived in a situation and in a context that the abortion rights movement would consider the best opportunity to sell an abortion. A young 15-year-old woman, Mary, who was unmarried, whose fiancé was considering leaving her, leaving her without financial stability. Jesus was in unplanned pregnancy, and indeed, the context in which he entered the world would have made Jesus the perfect prospect for abortion. If Roe versus Wade was applied in the first century, they would have aborted Jesus. This is the attack on human dignity. And when you attack human dignity, you attack God. Because whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for him. And it would have been better to have a millstone thrown around your neck and drowned than cause a little one to stumble. What about if you dismember those little ones? Christmas is the celebration of life. Let's not forget where our lives come from, where your value comes from, and to have those conversations with those that you love. So Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, happy holy days. And unfortunately, we have to change the tenor and examine the continuing moral decay in our country. So Pete Buttigieg decides that he needs to push abortion ideology onto a seven-year-old because the left loves using little children. They love using children to advance their agenda so that if you critique them, you can go, you're attacking children? How dare you? No, you're the ones attacking children. You're the ones defending, killing them through all nine months of pregnancy. The pro-choice movement is shameless, folks, completely shameless. Any semblance of morality or self-respect is gone. Let's look at some examples of this, okay? There used to be some semblance of a moral compass in the pro-choice movement, despite the fact that they justified killing babies. There's nothing even left of that. It's just so much shamelessness. So what did they used to call abortion? Safe, legal, and rare, right? A tacit admission that abortion is not a good thing because why else keep it rare? If it's a great thing, don't keep it rare. That's a tacit admission that maybe it's not a great thing. Now what is it? Now the message is shout your abortion, Under the Bush administration in 2002, unanimous bipartisan support for the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which just said if you're an abortion survivor and you escape through the birth canal and the abortion has failed to kill you in the womb, that you're a human being with human rights. That's all that bill said. Unanimous bipartisan support from Republican and Democratic senators. How about 2019? Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act proposed by Senator Ben Sass, which just required better care for those babies who survived abortions and penalties on abortionists or the staff in an abortion clinic who didn't report the fact that a baby was born alive or they intentionally let them die. Only three Democratic senators voted for that bill. Look at the shamelessness. Look how far we've moved from just the early 2000s. And then furthermore, the pro-choice movement used to largely support parental notification or consent requirements. And even if the those in the abortion industry didn't, most most Pro-choice politicians did. Like, okay, like the parents should be involved in that abortion decision if you're underage. There was fairly widespread support for parental notification and consent requirements. And then today, just the other week, Florida Democrats are delaying a vote on a parental notification law, intentionally trying to stifle it and stop it. Don't require that parents of underage children are notified before their child slaughters their parents' grandchildren, their own children. 
Look at how radical we have moved. There is no shame left in those who stump for killing unborn children. So what happened with Buttigieg here? Of course, he's been in the spotlight all the time for trying to use the Bible to defend abortion to the day of birth, calling you a bad Christian if you think that the Bible's pro-life, which it clearly is, and using his very smooth words because he is a he's a persuasive speaker to push really dangerous and disgusting ideologies. And yet we're, he's, he's posing himself as the moderate. He supports abortion to the day of birth. Okay, there's nothing moderate about that. So on December 5th at a town hall event in Henniker, New Hampshire, a little girl approaches him and asks him about abortion. And he uses it as an opportunity to push reproductive health care and to push this little girl into being pro-choice. Because as you'll see in this video, it's actually not entirely clear what she believes. So let's see what Pete Buttigieg had to say to a seven-year-old on abortion. So, Mayor Buttigieg, I have I have listened to you in the debates and learned some, some stuff about you, and that you have, uh, <clears throat> and that you believe in a woman's right to choose uh, about her own body. I agree with that, and <clears throat> no one should should mess with or choose about my body except me and my parents because I'm still a child. <clears throat> you. <laughs> you sound pretty sophisticated for a child. Do you do you mind if I ask how old you are? I don't mind. <laughs> well, how old are you? Seven. Really? Well, you're ahead of your time. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go go ahead and uh, continue your question if you'd like. <clears throat> I, I believe that that you uh, you make your decision <clears throat> on whether you're going to have a child uh, and and then your your decision is made and the abortion is not part of it uh, what do you uh, what do you think about that well um thanks for first of all thanks for speaking up about this and thanks for being here um and I wish I was as tuned into big issues when I was seven as you seem to be. Um, this is a hard issue for a lot of people because they believe different things. And where I live, people believe different things, um, including people that I respect. But the way I think about it is that this choice, it's about drawing a line. And we might each, following our own beliefs, have a different idea about where to draw the line. What I hope everybody, or at least most of us, can agree on is who gets to draw the line. And that's the person making the decision. That's the woman in question. And I trust women to make that choice. I don't think that choice is easy. I know that it's not going to be any better because the government's saying what it ought to be. I trust women to make that choice. And it sounds like you and I view this issue the same way. You know, this is just, you know, slavery is a really hard issue. People disagree on where to draw the line. And while everyone draws a line somewhere, I don't think the government should be telling the owners of black people whether they should be against it or not. I trust slave owners to make their own decisions about plantation care and property care. <laughs> this is the same arguments that that racist pro-slavery people were using. In fact, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, Douglas argued that he didn't believe that the government had a right to federally ban slavery, and he supported the right of each state to vote it up or down. Being a 
personally anti-slavery person, but we should allow the states to decide. Similarly, we should allow women to decide. The government shouldn't be federally mandating whether you can have an abortion or not. And we should trust slave owners to make their own decisions. It's the same type of verbiage and rhetoric that was used to justify slavery. And yet Pete Buttigieg, right, such a smooth speaker. He seems so friendly. He talks so friendly to this little girl. Yeah, except he would have slaughtered that little girl if she was in the womb. And if her parents decided that she was conceived in inconvenient circumstances, he would have looked at her parents when she was in utero and said, you should decide where to draw the line. It's disgusting to talk to a child about abortion. It's sick. But if he can use his child to push forward his political campaign, then props to him. That's exactly what he's going to do because he's a hack and he's posing himself as a moderate who supports killing children. This little girl is clearly not tuned into this issue and rightly so. She's a child. Buttigieg says, oh, I wish I was tuned in to these issues as you as you are at seven. No, no, you shouldn't even be talking to her about abortion. She's seven. Of course, she's not tuned into the issue. She shouldn't be. She should not even know about politics yet. Does that mean you can't have an interest? No, but when you're seven, what do you really know about abortion? Now, has this have her mothers talked to this kid yet? I don't know. But it's not appropriate for a politician to lecture a seven-year-old on abortion ideology in order to get PR stunts and PR campaigns for his political campaign. It's sick. She literally said, you make your decision on whether you're going to have a child and then your decision is made and the abortion is not part of it. It's not even clear that she's actually pro-choice. And what she said before about you know, I, I believe that, that you shouldn't tell people what to do with their body. She's probably literally talking about her body. She probably doesn't understand that the abortion debate actually involves another body. That seems to be what's suggested here when she says, if you choose to have a child, then your decision made and abortion is not a part of it. Right. Once there's a baby that you created in consensual sex, then abortion should not be a part of the consideration because that's a new human being. And yet P. Buttigieg with his smooth and soft words that gently lead town to death. He reminds me of the, the proverbial prostitute whose smooth words are enticing but that lead you down to death, the doorway of death. That's what he's doing rhetorically with a seven-year-old. The psalmist says regarding a friend that betrayed him, he says, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Pete Buttigieg is a smooth and soft speaker, and he can describe some of the most violent, disgusting acts against humanity in very buttery and soft ways. He is an expert at euphemisms. And as an educated man, he knows how to maintain an ideology in front of an audience. But his war in his heart is against unborn children. And his, his words are drawn swords against unborn children who he literally supports killing through the day of birth. If Buttigieg had even a smidgen of self-respect left, he would have responded to this question by saying something like, you know, this is a complex debate and there are good people on both sides of the issue. I'm not sure how much you know or how much your parents have talked to you or discussed it with you, but I don't want to usurp their authority or role. So I'm so glad you came out tonight and, and I'd encourage you, I think, as, as any other parent would want me here to, to ask your parents so they can have a great conversation with you and guide that discussion with you. If he had a smidgen of self-respect left, any shame left, that's how he would have responded to this. Instead, he uses a child 
to push abortion ideology and indoctrinate her by saying, it sounds like you and I agree. No, that was not clear. She said, if you get pregnant, choose to have a baby. Abortion is not a part of that. This is sick stuff. A movement that defends the slaughter of children will have no problem with the indoctrination of children. If you support killing children, why would you be opposed to indoctrinating children? You want an example of this, by the way? Literally this week, Planned Parenthood announced that they're going to open 50 new high school sexual health and well-being centers in LA County schools. 50. They're going to get into 50 high schools in Los Angeles County with with sexual health and well-being centers. Now, according to the news, apparently they're not offering abortion services, but they don't have to. Even the sex ed bill that Newsom is mandating on California was co-written by Planned Parenthood. Right, because the abortion industry in Planned Parenthood doesn't have any financial incentive to sexualize children early so that they have unplanned pregnancies, so that they walk them into the doors of death, into the arms of Molech, right? They have no financial incentive to do that. We see right through this. This is sick stuff. Sexualizing children earlier, there's never any abstinence training. It's all about here's condoms. Here, go have more sex. And when you get pregnant, come to us and we'll rip the baby apart for a pretty penny. If you don't have a problem slaughtering children, you won't have a problem with the ideological indoctrination of children. That's what Buttigieg is doing. That's what nearly every Democratic presidential candidate is fine with. And that's what the abortion rights movement does to children. There's no shame left. This is the shamelessness of abortion ideology. So next, we're going to examine the shamelessness from the abortion crazies, more of it. And I'll explain what their supposed shamelessness means for us. And then we'll look at the logical consistency and inconsistency of their ideas. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of this battle and this movement, if you want to support this show, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted. That's patreon.com slash unaborted. And consider becoming a patron of the show. Jump on for 5, 10, 15, 20 bucks a month if you're feeling generous. And that actually enables us to increase the production value. We're going to start bringing on guests. We have one ready for you already. So you can meet more people who are defending life, who are defending truth, who are being a light in this crooked and depraved generation. And we want to help you shine like stars. We want you to be able to equip to defend life. Because as Greg Cunningham said, there's more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. We're trying to get more people in the game to save life. And whether that's part-time, full-time, or just in the marketplace in your life, you're being a voice for life. We need to have that happen. So consider supporting this show at patreon.com slash unaborted. We'll be back right back with a lot more. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So more of this shamelessness in the abortion rights movement, complete lack of self-respect, complete exposure of how radical they have gotten and the refusal to even feel shame over positions and rhetoric that their political forebears would have felt just a decade ago. We're seeing the increased radicalization of the abortion rights movement and it should concern all of us because it is an attack on babies, and it is an attack on human equality. So more evidence of this. Actress Jamila Jamil from the show The Good Place, I've never watched it, says there's no democracy without abortion. You see, it's a fundamental principle of a democracy to have abortion, and you can't have it without abortion. So there was a November interview between Jamila and Gloria Steinem, a abortion crazy in her own right, at Harper's Bazaar, where they each went full abortion crazy, and this led to sharp backlash online from pro-life individuals. 
Well, so this triggered Jamil to tweet this in early December. She said, there is no democracy without a woman's right to choose. I said what I effing said, and you're clueless if you think I'm going to take it back. My life is more important to me than an unborn fetus's one. Suck on that. No shame. Just unbelievable. The irony is that abortion actually does suck on that fetus. Abortion does suck that fetus into oblivion as long as it's not developed enough to need forceps. It'll then be sucked into a vacuum. So ironic, dark humor there that she's actually describing abortion fairly accurately. This tells us a lot. This tells us what the abortion rights movement believes. They all know that they're killing babies, but it doesn't matter, right? Because their mantra is that my life is more important than an unborn child's life. (laughs) And she admits that it's a life. My life, she says, is more important to me than an unborn fetus's one, than an unborn fetus's life. So it's life. I don't care. Suck on that. I'm going to have more abortions. Shameless. So evil. This deification of self means that I'm my own God. And so if you're your own God, you can do whatever the hell you want. If I'm my own God, then everyone else exists to serve me. If you behave as God, then you become the arbiter of right and wrong and life and death. And if anyone challenges you, then they can be killed too. That's not the kind of culture we want. One where everyone behaves as their own God, regardless of how their decisions impact those around them. That's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for moral chaos. It already has been for unborn children and the families that it wounds. But now the shameless promotion of what they actually believe is just going to be cause further damage to our culture. That's not the kind of culture we want to live in. So Jamila Jamil continues her shameless defense and celebration of abortion in, in multiple tweets and Instagram posts, just showing how angry she actually is. She says in this tweet, receiving thousands of messages about how I made a mistake having an abortion seven years ago and how I must be a miserable person. I am, in fact, a happy, thriving multimillionaire, madly in love with free time, good sleep, and a wonderful career in life. But thanks for checking. See, killing my baby enabled me to deify myself and create a life for myself built on consumption, built on wealth, built on self-pleasure, built on my pursuit of liberty at all costs, my sexual liberty, my career liberty. This, This is not the kind of culture that we want, one that kills children and then flaunts it publicly as a social good. This disturbs most people. This shamelessness is relatively new and certainly not as popular as it is now. There's always been those who have been shameless about abortion, right? They've always promoted it as a social good. But nothing like we're seeing now, never as many people, never as public, never as frequent. And now it's becoming completely normal. Our culture has lost its way. It's on the wrong path. How do we get back to the right path? What does this all really mean? Well, she continues in an Instagram post saying, defending abortion, that the choice is the landlords, not the tenants, nor the neighbors. Your uterus, your choice. It's a very strange argument for abortion. Of course, what she's trying to do is make an analogy by saying, just as the tenant lives in the landlord's property, so too do unborn children live in their mother's wombs. And so their property because it's the mother's body. So that's the analogy she's trying to make. But when she says your uterus, your choice, what is she saying? She's saying it's your choice 
to kill whatever is in you. To, it's your choice to kill what resides in you or lives on your property. So in a strange inversion of reality, she just said that landlords can kill their tenants <laughs> because we actually know what she means when she says your uterus, your choice. So the worldview here is actually saying it's all human beings can kill each other as long as they find them on their own property. Ooh, I think we've went down that road before and it didn't lead to a good culture and it led to pretty bad consequences. So what is Jamil's and more largely the abortion movement's supposed shamelessness over abortion really mean? How should we think through this? I think that the intensity of the abortion movement's shamelessness is it's a it's a hint and it's a whisper. It's a whisper that they are actually ashamed and wounded. I th I think this sh this radical loud frequent shameless promotion of your abortion is actually a whisper that I'm ashamed and I'm wounded and I have to do this in order to convince myself that I'm not. I think that's what's really going on here. Because think about it this way. Would a critique of any other commonplace medical procedure incite as much anger, defense, and shameless celebration as an abortion does? Can you think of any other commonplace surgical procedure that would incite such a shameless celebration and promotion? Of course not. <laughs> of course it wouldn't. If I critiqued your removal of a polyp or a mole and I was going at you saying you committed a moral wrong, would you start shamelessly promoting the removal of your polyp to the whole world on social media? Or would you shrug your shoulders and go, okay, Seth, well, screw you. I don't really care what you think. <laughs> right? You wouldn't care. You wouldn't care what I think about that because you would recognize that that's not morally controversial. It's not something you need to defend. It's certainly not something you need to promulgate. This shameless bravado from the abortion rights movement and from post-abortive women is a band-aid for a wounded and tortured soul, for a tormented soul that regardless of their denial of a God and of an external objective reality, the moral compass in their heart is trying to point true north and they're trying to shove it back south and convince it that two plus two equals five and babies are not babies. This woman is tormented. Nobody would celebrate the killing of their child with such shameless abandon if the child was not a child and if you weren't wounded and experiencing shame for the decision that you pursued. I think that's what this really means for us. Here's an example of this. Have you ever questioned a friend or a family member about something that they did wrong and that you knew that they did wrong? And they, they responded with just this overly zealous defense of their innocence, a justification of their actions. You've probably seen this with your kids, right? They did something wrong. You knew that they did it or maybe someone in your life. And the intensity of which they begin to defend themselves is a tacit admission that they knew that what they did was wrong, isn't it? Otherwise, they would just say, well, I didn't do it and you're wrong. Or, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoa, dude, you're, you're coming at me with a lot of justifications for what you did. Kind of intense, bro. Are you okay? Because we see through that crap, don't we? We see through that shameless bravado. The same thing is happening here. This tells us that, like I said last week, they know they're killing babies. They know that. They knew that they arranged the death of their child. But secondly, it tells us that they're wounded and their soul is tormented by what they've done. And in order to live with that reality, 
They have to promulgate this shamelessness and invert the narrative and say that it's a social good. It's a way to deal with their own trauma. So what is the solution to this? Well, I think the solution to this is what the pro-life movement is already doing. I think the pro-life movement has a good solution to this. We show imagery of the baby. We show imagery of abortion. We make our arguments in the public square, square, and we extend a hand of friendship, healing, and restoration to those who have been wounded by abortion through pregnancy care clinics that outnumber abortion clinics at least two to one in our country, through churches, and through individuals who are promoting life and light to those around them who have been wounded by abortion. We provide the solution of immediate physical and psychological healing, and we offer the solution of eternal healing, of eternal life. The pro-life movement's already doing that. We need to do it more. And the American church needs to link hands with the pro-life movement as it should have done in 1973 and commit themselves to the same mission. This is actually an opportunity. It's a soapbox for the American church to jump on and proclaim the gospel in a way to individuals who may have never heard it like that before, speaking to their tormented soul, which is a whisper and a hint that they crave for something more. So we're going to get to more of this shamelessness of abortion ideology in a second. But first, I want to, I want to give you a new opportunity to promote life at your church, particularly those in the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area and in Southern California. So I've teamed up with my new friend, Sarah Vienna for a pro-life church tour called I'm Alive. Sarah is an international speaker and singer who works in Romania half the time in the States, defending the cause of the needy from unborn to elderly. And our I'm Alive church tour is named after Sarah's song, I'm Alive, about the unborn children in our midst. I'm Alive Tour captures both the beauty and the truth of the pro-life position and message. Speaking to the heart and the head, this tour will win the hearts of your church for life while also equipping them to defend life. The Bible tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This tour is designed to speak to the heart and to the head. Based on biblical truths, I'm Alive can help your church create a culture of life that fights to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers. So if you're interested in bringing this tour to your church in the summer of 2020, then email us at imalivetour at gmail.com. Spots will fill up fast. We are focusing it only on the summer. So let us know. I'm alive tour at gmail.com for questions and bookings. We'll get back to a lot more in just one second. In the meantime, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So fatherly is this sort of leftist dad publication that claims to empower men to raise great kids and lead more fulfilling adult lives. It's all a sham. It's all fake. They're a leftist publication organization. They're full leftist values, if you will. Everything that goes along with that. Let your imagination wander. And they covered a story in an interview format with a family who killed their baby because he had Down syndrome, but then named their next son after him. How sick is that? You killed your child and then you named the next child after him in honor of him because apparently he had intrinsic dignity, value, and worth, which you denied from him when you killed him. How lovely. What a clashing of worldviews. This exposes more of this shamelessness. So this article at Fatherly by Lizzie Francis on December 19th is called Why I Had an Abortion After Our Fetus Tested Positive for Trisomy 21. 
Okay, notice firstly the clinical language used in this article. They call the baby a fetus and they call the diagnosis trisomy 21 rather than using the word baby in Down syndrome. It makes it feel more clinical, like maybe the actions the family pursued were justified because of some horrible diagnosis. A lot of people don't know what trisomy 21 is. It's Down syndrome. We all know Down syndrome people. Maybe some of you don't and less and less of us do because most of them are aborted when their parents are told that they have Down syndrome. So eugenics. So here you have fatherly basically endorsing eugenics because they pursue family values and encourage men to be great fathers and lead fulfilling lives. <laughs> when you when your abortion shamelessness goes as far as justifying eugenics, that's a sign you've gone too far. It's a sign you're on the wrong road. You're justifying eugenics, for goodness sake, on a website claiming to encourage men. Here, Literally, here's the fatherly about us. Our mission is to empower men to raise great kids and lead more fulfilling adult lives. But if you have to dismember one of your kids because they're not molecularly perfect in order to live your more fulfilling adult life, then amen. Yay. Encouraging fathers to kill their own. (laughs) Fatherly.com. This is who this organization has become. When I checked them out a few years ago, I thought they were kind of cool, kind of fun articles. And then I started seeing abortion stuff. I started seeing that there's no such thing as gender. that The gay marriage is a social good. And this is who they become. So listen to the linguistic dehumanization that flows from this mother's lips in this interview, as if it's like a second language, as if it's the language of compassion. If you remember one of the earlier episodes of Unaborted, we covered a video series that interviewed women in Georgia who got late-term abortions because their babies had fetal diagnoses that they decided meant their baby didn't wasn't worthy to have life, that they would have a less than ideal life. And so they killed them in the name of compassion. The same thing is happening here. And it's becoming increasingly more common because it's so shameless. When you promulgate evil, you call evil good and good evil, then it's impossible to remain rational. You can't stay on a philosophically coherent path because everything's been inverted. And so then you actually convince yourself that it's actually compassionate to dismember your offspring if they're diagnosed with Down syndrome. That's eugenics, folks. And you have a dad magazine promoting it online. So listen to the mother's language in this interview as she as she tries really hard to suppress the truth that she killed her child by pretending like it was compassionate and that they had to do it for the good of the family. She says, according to, or the article says, according to her amniocentesis doctor, there were more abnormalities that wouldn't become clear until the baby was born. So Miranda her husband, and her husband made a decision they felt was necessary for the family they already had. They chose to have an abortion. Right, because the baby you're pregnant with is not part of your family, right? The family they already had? So your identification membership in a family is based on your location? If you're in the womb, you're not part of the family? But if you're outside the womb, then you are part of the family? So even the writer of this article was saying that describing the family, that they felt it was necessary for the family they already had, resorting to dehumanizing rhetoric to push the fantasy, the fake news, (laughs) that the baby in the womb is not part of the family. So then the mom starts to talk. She says, so my husband and I made a very, very hard decision. For the good of the family and not knowing what the complications were, we would have a late-term abortion. It was very emotionally difficult as well as painful. Yeah, no, 
Yeah, because you killed your baby. Of course it was emotionally difficult and painful. Oh, but you did it for the good of the family. Yeah, have fun telling your children that later. We did it for you. We killed your sibling for you. She says actually in the article that they waited to tell their other born children that they didn't kill later. They waited to tell them when they were older. Why not? It's not a person with any rights. Oh, wait, you're actually struggling emotionally because of it? You don't want your children to know that you slaughtered one of their siblings because they had an inconvenient diagnosis? They weren't chromosomally perfect? <laughs> this, this is what happens when ideology trumps reality. When, when you believe that human value doesn't come from your human nature, which we all have in common, but rather it comes from the circumstances of your conception and on the subjective standard of your chromosomal perfection. What a sick and twisted view of the world. This is the same type of worldview that was reigning during the Holocaust, that was reigning during slavery. And now it's been repackaged today in America and pushed as a social compassionate good for the good of the family. These people are lost and they need to be exposed to reality. We do that through abortion imagery. We do that through prenatal imagery. We do that for praying for these people. They have bought a bad idea. They are the consequence. They are the victims of bad ideas. And you would think that when those bad ideas start to manifest themselves with the promotion of eugenics, you would realize you've gone down the wrong road. But no, she goes further. She says, to this day, it's very hard. The decision wasn't something either of us took lightly, okay, but we did make it. That baby was named Eli. Great, you killed him before, you named him before you killed him. We got pregnant again and named our new child Eli in honor of the first. And then we went on to have our third child. And so we do have three healthy children. I don't regret it. I'm sad about it, but I don't regret it. Do you see the clashing of do you see the conflicting nature of this debate? Because as I always say, reality has an annoying tendency of reasserting itself in our lives uninvited. <laughs> so in a strange way, the abortion rights movement and worldview involves the constant suppression of reality because it's self-evident. And you have to suppress it in order to hold the pieces of your worldview together to maintain the ideology. It becomes very difficult because – as it turns out, it's actually difficult to defend an indefensible position. And abortion is, of course, an indefensible position. So she says, it's, we didn't take it lightly. I don't regret it. I'm sad about it, but I don't regret it. So what does all this mean? What does this mean for us? How do we make sense of this? And how do we deal with these kind of people in our culture? Well, it means that dangerous and fallacious ideologies will always have holes in them. It means bad worldviews. Bad views of human equality will always have holes in them. And those holes are the self-evident and obvious problems, right? The holes in your worldview, the holes in your ideas. They're, they're self-evidently seen because they're so blatant. And you can see her exposing those. I regret it. Um, I don't regret it, but I'm sad about it. We named the baby, but we killed him. He didn't have worth because we killed him because he had Down syndrome, but we named our next child after him. We did it for the good of the family. You see her conflicted over this because reality is trying to reassert itself in her mind and she keeps suppressing it. Similar to Jamila Jamil, she probably has to do this in order to live with herself rather than acknowledge that I arranged the death and the slaughter of my baby simply because he had Down syndrome. 
the proponents of abortion ideology have to work extra hard, don't they, to hold their worldview together. But they're constantly dropping pieces. They're constantly dropping pieces of their worldview because the puzzle doesn't fit. They don't go together. You can't maintain that ideology. It's an evil, morally bankrupt ideology that's proven itself to be such through the lessons of history. So that's what that means. It means that these problems are self-evident and you have to work extra hard to hold it all together because an indefensible worldview is just that, indefensible and impossible to hold together. So I think there's at least two things going on here. One, there's the logical consistency of abortion ideology and shamelessness. It's actually consistent to promote abortion and be shameless about it. But secondly, there's these logical inconsistencies of abortion ideology that can't help but let the truth slip, let the truth slip once in a while. And then you have to deal with the reality that you promote this, but the self-evident reality keeps pushing to the surface and you let it slip sometime from your tongue. Like when she says, I'm sad about it. It's not a decision we took lightly. So let's look at both of these. There is a logical consistency between the ideology and worldview of abortion and shamelessness about that procedure, about that decision. Because think about it. If the unborn child is not a child or a person – not a child, not a person, no moral worth, then there is no shame in abortion, regardless of the reason. Would you have shame over the removal of a polyp or a mole, over a mastectomy, over a surgery? No, of course you wouldn't, because those things are not intrinsically valuable. (laughs) You are, though. So you have to deny that the unborn child is intrinsically valuable. But if that's true and they're not a person at all, then there's nothing to be shameful about. So there is a sense of logical consistency to being shameless. But most abortion supporters are not intellectually honest enough to go that far, to say, kill a baby for having Down syndrome? Yeah. Kill a baby because they're female? Yeah. Kill a baby because they're unwanted? Yeah. Most people aren't willing to go that far because that seems too brutish. That seems too ghoulish. But this increased shamelessness is promoting abortion for any reason or no reason at all. This shamelessness is actually based on something, right? It's not... It's not just morally neutral. Uh, It's not just gratuitous. It's actually based on something. It's based on a worldview called relativism. Relativism says that there are no objective realities that are true for all people at all times and in all places. There's nothing that's true for everyone or false for everyone. There is no meta-narrative that makes sense of reality. There's only the micro-narrative, the personal experience, your feelings, which apparently trump facts. Relativism says that that's the only thing that's true. The only thing that's true is what you feel is true about you and what you feel is true about the world around you. That's the only thing that's really true. So if you think abortion was the removal of a polyp, then it actually is. Of course, they don't realize that if you take this to its logical conclusion – then you could say, well, I don't think blacks are persons and I want to treat them like cattle. And then they go, whoa, 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 I don't like that. But there is a logical consistency to saying babies are not persons at any point in the pregnancy and therefore being shameless about abortion. But it rests on this idea of relativism, which is the secular religion of the left, right? The secular religion of the left is that there are no objective truths. There's only subjective personal truths. Whatever's true for you is all that's true. Whatever feels good, you do it. Whatever works for you, that's fine. Your personal experience is actually the objective reality. So relativism denies objective truths. But if you destroy the notion of good and evil and right and wrong, 
which we would argue are objective truth, right? We would argue that things are actually objectively good and actually objectively evil and wrong. But the left denies that reality. So if you destroy the notion, the very existence of right and wrong and good and evil, then what is there to be shameful over? Shame assumes that what? You done something wrong. You done messed up. You should feel bad. That's what shame says. But you just denied the entire structure that shame is built on. So if there is no good and evil and right and wrong, then there's nothing to feel shameful over. But according to leftist ideology, you you, you shouldn't feel shameful about anything. And so there is this certain coherency and consistency to promoting abortion and being shameless about it. But we're going to see in a second when that becomes impossible to maintain. So the second thing that this shamelessness, this, this shameless bravado of abortion tells us is that there are actual inconsistencies to abortion ideology and the human experience. Because even this mother in this article can't help but let truth slip from time to time. While saying that she's shameless, while saying she doesn't regret the slaughter of her baby because her baby was diagnosed with Down syndrome, she'll simultaneously say, but we named the baby Eli. Whoa. So he had enough moral worth to be given a name? If he had enough moral worth to be given a name, why did you kill him in the first place? It was a hard decision. I'm sad about it, but I don't regret it. So she's letting these objective truth slips happen and slip off of her tongue which exposes the inability to hold a coherent abortion ideology worldview together. So notice the different truth slips, right? That we named our new child in honor of Eli. It wasn't something either of us took lightly. Why use that language unless the thing you lost or killed in this, in this place was a little person with intrinsic dignity? You're acknowledging that the baby has intrinsic dignity, by talking about them in that way, by giving them a name. And if they are, then maybe they deserve to not be killed in the first place. You see the inability to hold this worldview together. So in other words, what I'm saying is if it's if it's reasonable to mourn the loss of an unborn child, then it's unreasonable to support the ideology of abortion, which says that these children are non-persons with no worth. If it's reasonable to mourn the loss of an unborn child, that's because they had moral worth. And so therefore, it's unreasonable to support abortion, which says they have no moral worth. And it actually says that if you mourn the loss of them, that you shouldn't have that emotion. It dehumanizes objective, objective human emotions that would mourn the loss of a loved one by saying, there's nothing to mourn. It's not a person. So there's another inconsistency here, too, that exposes the fallacious nature of abortion ideology. And it's the simultaneous rejection and acceptance of the idea of shame. In other words, the left and the pro-choice movement only like the idea of shame when it serves their purposes. Here's what I mean by that. Shame, they say shame is a silly idea, right? Because there is no such thing as objective right and wrong. And so why feel bad over a perceived wrong when wrong is a fantasy concept? That's what they say. Until you disagree with the left, and you actually think that babies are babies and they're persons with moral worth, and you fight to save those babies and pass pro-life legislation, then what do they say? What do they say to you? They say, shame on you. Shame on you for shaming women. <laughs> Wait, you, you just said there's no such thing as shame because there's nothing to feel shameful about because there is nothing that is objectively evil until you tell them that they're wrong. 
right? That's the intolerance of the perceived leftist tolerance. Once you challenge their ideology and you tell them that they are wrong, then they're going to tell you that you're what? Objectively wrong, that you're a bigot for trying to save babies and you're imposing your rosaries on their ovaries. And now there is objective moral right and wrong. You see, in the left, there's only objective right and wrong when it serves their purposes and when they can resort to ad hominem attacks on your character in order to silence you. Look at this, the same narrative all the time, isn't it? Silence those that we disagree with in order to maintain our ideology and give no ground, else we risk losing those in our movement who might acknowledge the self-evident reality that babies are babies and deny the reality of objective truths and good and evil until we're challenged and then we'll claim there are objective right and wrong and good and evil and then we'll say that you're objectively wrong if you oppose abortion. That is what is going on here. So you have the logical consistency in promoting abortion because babies aren't babies and they're not persons and being shameless about it. But simultaneously, there's a logical inconsistency of saying that babies are not babies and we can kill them. But then sometimes letting the truth slip because reality has an annoying tendency of reasserting itself into our lives uninvited. And typically, reality is self-evident particularly when it deals with the value of human beings that we all know deep down. If you're a human being, you're a person and you have moral worth. We know the objective reality though, don't we? There is good and there is evil. There is right and there is wrong. Not only is abortion wrong and evil, it may be the singular greatest evil in human history. It's clearly wrong. It's self-evidently wrong. And the country knows that today more than ever before. The pro-abortion movement knows that today more than ever before. Because we're seeing the baby. We're seeing the image that is the only argument you need against abortion. And we're seeing the increased radicalism of those who are scared that abortion on demand will end. But as Mother Teresa famously and accurately said, if abortion isn't wrong, then nothing is wrong. We cannot give any ground here. They won't give any ground. And on the greatest moral evil the greatest genocide in human history, we as pro-life individuals can't give any ground. Because if we can't win on the abortion wars, where it's particularly the greatest heinous act ever, then what else is acceptable if it's okay to kill a baby? We need to be as committed to life, if not more, than those who are committed to death. That's what this podcast is about. That's what this show is about, equipping you to defend life. Well, that's all that we have time for for today. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful time with your family, with your loved ones. Spread a little generosity. Spread a little joy. We've been loved lavishly. We've been very blessed. Share that in a season that recognizes the ultimate sharing, the ultimate gift of the God-man who came as a fetus. Thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube and give the show a rating and review. It really helps. Share it with someone you know. Say, hey, check this out over Christmas. Share this episode with them. And if you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com for my speaking schedule, my training videos, to jump on my newsletter so you can get more content delivered to your inbox. And we're going to be next back next week with an exciting interview for you. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Oh, 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 o